Hi, I'm Lisa Lucas. Hey, I'm Marin Nguyen. And you're listening to PodNed, a podcast for nurses in the emergency department. Hey everybody, welcome back to PodNed um, and we're going to continue filming our resource series today. Um, we've got a few extras today, so we've got our regulars, Kiri and Laura. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Hello. And we've got um, the beautiful Neil, Dr. Neil Miller. Thanks for coming, Doctor. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Neil does a lot of the education with us. He's currently um, one of our simulation registrars, so um, we love working with Neil, so thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. So we're going to talk through a paediatric airway. You've got a case for us, Kiri? Yeah, we thought it'd be a good idea to discuss, you know, the airway role in general and the different considerations. So a peds case study on a bronchiolitis patient is probably a juicy way to discuss a lot of airway points. Um, today we have a 10 kilo, 13 month old who was brought into ED with bronchiolitis symptoms, so wheezing, shortness of breath and fevers. Um, and they need to be intubated because they have increasing lethargy from their severe work of breathing, decreased um, oxygen saturations, and their CO2 on their gas is 98. So what kinds of things would you get set up, Laura? Well, one of the things that I would be considering before we um, intubate this child is putting an NG in early on. Um, from the uh, original history from the case study, it wasn't clear whether the patient had already been on high flow, um, but if they were, they would already have that NG inserted, but otherwise we'd be getting that in prior to intubation so that why? we can decompress the stomach. That was my next question. Why, why would that be super important in this case? What kinds of things um, do you reckon we would notice if we didn't do that? Insertion of the nasogastric. Dropping of their saturations, poor ventilation once they're chewed, from having increased air in their stomach. Yeah, cool. So, Neil, from a doctor's perspective, what kinds of things would you want to make sure that we have ready for you for this case, this age child? Yeah, so I think um, this case poses a number of challenges, uh, particularly working in a mixed emergency department where we might not be so um, familiar with with uh, intubating a small child. Um, so I think it's it's important to have a checklist approach in this situation. So making sure that we've got the appropriate sized airways available, the appropriate sized um, adjuncts for their airway, and the appropriate sized masks for pre-oxygenation. So it sounds like this child's probably going to be on high flow already, mm. um, but whether we're going to have adjuncts on top of that for um, additional oxygenation and pre-oxygenation. Um, I guess that brings up a good question that, that all of that, the sizing, um, so it's a two, two-parter. One, how will we work out that the 10 kilos is appropriate age that we're running off? Uh, and two, how will we work out the sizing for all of those things? The cred. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the full word for the cred meat is actually. It is children's resuscitation emergency drugs dosage guideline. Guideline, yeah. So that's the resource that we use uh, where we currently work, and it's an amazing guideline. So you jump to 10 kilos, and you would not only have all of the drugs and doses for that weight, 
but it also tells you the size ETT and G, um, where the ETT needs to be at the lips, um, the LMA size, even the IDC size. So we're, we, we're very lucky we've got the hard copies um, of the cred, but we also have online. Can you uh, tell us where you can get that online if you're not working here in our facility? Yes, you would just jump on to the Children's Health Queensland website and then you would go through to the Queensland Paediatric Emergency Care page in their browser, jump on the Resuscitation tab and then hit Drugs and that will open up the cred. And in that Resuscitation tab, you also have other um, paediatric resus tools such as the Airway Algorithm, ETT Taping Guide, ETT Size Guide, um, and and I think if you if you scroll down on that uh, head page, it gives you a weight calculator as well, doesn't it? Where you can check your weight. Yes, if child. you don't have time to weigh the child, absolutely. I think we're really lucky here, uh, and for other facilities that have it, we've got the um, the the scale pat slide here in our facility, and I've used that for drug for children, sorry, resuscitations before. If you've got time. When you transfer them off the QAS, you put the pad slide down and you can get an accurate weight, which I think is really cool. But when we don't have that ability, uh, the CRED is a great resource. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a game changer in terms of ease of um, calculations and, and drug dosing in uh, in small kids. Mm. Um, it, it makes life much easier. Yeah, it does. I actually keep a copy of the website on my phone in my favourites, so I've always got it with me. Yeah, so I guess, you know, once you've optimised the patient, you put in the NG, you're pre-oxygenating them, you have rehydrated them as best as possible. Um, if Laura and Neil were the airway nurse and doctor, what sort of plans would you come up with? Yeah, so I think one more thing I would want to do, particularly in a small child, is, is making sure that the positioning of the patient is optimised um, for the first attempt to make that first attempt the best attempt. Absolutely. And what um, positioning would that be? And so that's the sniffing position or sniffing the morning air. And so that's lining up the uh, tragus to the sternal notch. So in, in a child who is this age group, I would likely need to pop a shoulder roll behind the shoulder. So usually a rolled up towel would be appropriate um, or a folded up sheet, depending on the size of the child. And that's just to achieve that position. And the, the benefit of that is that it lines up your airway axis so that it makes direct and video laryngoscopy uh, much easier um, to perform because you've got that straight line view of the cord as well. Yeah, cool. And then, so if you're happy with your position um, and, and we've done, you know, our, our pre-oxygenation and NG and everything, what what kind of plans would you expect to to go through or what, what would be the next step as the OA team? I would certainly be having a discussion with the doctor about some considerations um, specifically for pain. So I'd be asking the doctor whether they would prefer to use a straight blade or a curved blade for a paediatric intubation, um, whether they would prefer to use a stylet or a bougie. There's definitely quite a few um, things to work out uh, in terms of your airway trolley setup um, prior to a pediatric intubation. Um, so, Neil, would you prefer to have a straight blade or a curved blade? Yeah, so that's 
that's a tricky one to be honest in, in this situation and um, this child is on the kind of cut off in my mind as to where I would be using a maybe using a straight blade versus a curved blade I've got more experience and familiarity with a curved blade um, but the the benefits of a straight blade in this child and it's certainly younger um, children under one would be that it allows you to directly pick up the epiglottis when you're performing laryngoscopy as opposed to the straight blade whereby you're going into the molecular and kind of indirectly picking up the epiglottis to view the to view the larynx and the cords um, so I would in this situation I would probably use a straight blade um, but have a curved blade ready in case that was tricky um, and the next question was about bougie versus stylet I think still in this age group I would use it as stylet as personal preference um, bougies in, in, in young kids can be quite challenging um, and again not something I have a great deal of experience with in terms of the very young kids so yeah there's more steps too, isn't there, with a paediatric bougie because bougie because it's got a, a stylet inside it. So um, you still either have to pre-insert it into your ETT or be ready to remove it and then uh, put your ETT over the top, which um, from my experience is rather difficult because mm. the bougie for a paediatric isn't as stable as the adult one and it can move a bit more. Mm. It's quite smaller sure ETT. When you're trying to yeah. Yeah. Whereas with an adult, it's what chosen 99% of the time, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And it's, um, it, as you said, Lisa, it's just another step in the process mm -hmm. in a child who is potentially going to desaturate during that process. So yeah. the quicker you can make this process, the better in my, in my head. Have you done many um, paediatric tubes without using either? Choosing the tube? Uh, no, to be honest, I've, I've probably used um, a stylet on every occasion that yeah. I've intubated a small child. Yeah. And then do you just use a laryngoscope or do you use a video laryngoscope? Um, my approach personally would be to use direct laryngoscopy unless I had reasons to believe that the child is going to be difficult from the offset. Okay. I would always have video laryngoscopy in the room and the appropriate size blades available. Um, but my approach would be to use direct in a small child um, with the backup of video there. Okay. What are some of the things that would make you say this child is a, a difficult intubation and I want to start straight away with a video laryngoscopy? Yeah. Um, so I think when we're talking about kind of a difficult airway in general, that's probably made up of three different things. So the first is is this child or person going to be difficult to bag from the offset? So that's the first thing I consider. Yep. And that's people with, maybe doesn't apply to children, but beards, they're obese, they've got no teeth, um, means that you can't really make a good seal. Um, if they have reduced neck mobility or a large neck. So that's not very common in kids, yep. particularly. Um, in patients who anatomically have a difficult airway, so they might have small mouth opening, small higher mental distance, which is the distance kind of between their hyoid bone in their neck and and uh, their chin, um, and also any reduced neck mobility. All those things are going to make um, 
the actual intubation process is difficult. In kids, the things that you worry about are kids with big tongues, um, when they have a particularly high an anterior larynx, which is quite common, um, and just physiologically that they have a propensity to desaturate on induction, just because they don't have that functional residual capacity that, that adults have. Absolutely. So do you use apneic oxygenation then every time? Yeah, so every single time. I guess, I mean, we're pretty used to using um, just your nasal prongs for apneic oxygenation in adults um, with the occasional high flow if they're already on it. But I guess in these cases, they generally are already on high flow. Um, But what would be your preference uh, and what would be the reasons around choosing one or the other? Um, so I think in this situation where the kid is already on high flow, it doesn't make sense to take them off that. Um, and actually, in kids in general, if you're intubating them, the use of high flow for apneic oxygenation is definitely preferred. It's not something I commonly do in adults unless they are completely obtunded um, or they are very hypoxic to start with. Um, usually my approach would be 15 litres via non-rebreather with 15 litres via the nasal prong underneath, yeah. which gives the patient a bit of a hurricane up the nose, but just gives you that extra time to um, to desaturation, which is important in any airway, really. So I guess uh, it's fair to say uh, that given their high risk of having that, that plummet post-induction, that if there was time and ab- ability to put high flow on, if they weren't already on it, you would go ahead and get that ready for yep. re- for apneic oxygenation. Yes, yeah. Just quickly back to um, you know any difficult airway considerations, who would you contact um, you know from ED to come from elsewhere to assist you if you thought this child I need video laryngoscopy, I need a difficult airway box. Who are the other people that you would contact to be on standby or to perhaps take over? Yeah, if um if I identify that it's going to be a very difficult intubation, then I think certainly having another senior colleague in the room from an ED perspective, definitely. but on top of that, having anaesthetics available um, is definitely advisable um, in that sort of situation. And I think that is something that we shouldn't be scared to do in the emergency department. Yeah. And it's certainly a question that can be asked of any intubator um, because I think if, if you've got a difficult scenario, the worst thing that can happen is that kid becomes hypoxic, um, just because you haven't asked for it. Yeah, it's always good to have someone there for a backup. Mm. Okay, so we've got our equipment. And now what are you going to do as the airway team? As the airway nurse, I'll be having a discussion with the airway doctor, Neil, about what his plan A, B and C is going to be for intubating this child. Yeah, so... At that time, we'd have a discussion about our plan A, B, C, and D. And so plan A in this situation, I would personally use direct laryngoscopy with a stylet on my ETT. Um, As part of that plan A and as part of the three steps in in that plan A, or three attempts in that plan A, I would have video laryngoscopy there as well. Plan B, if that is not successful, is to use a supraglottic airway device and in our department that would be an eye gel of the appropriate size which again we can check via the cred yes we can um plan c would be returning to a bag valve mask 
And at that stage, if you haven't asked for help already, then you certainly should be involving anaesthetics um, or other senior help within the emergency department. And Plan D, the difficult airway scenario, is where we have a patient that we can't intubate and we can't ventilate. And so we need to think about front of neck access and a surgical airway. And now we have our paediatric difficult airway boxes as well in recess. So I would definitely, as the airway nurse, have one of those ready to go in the, the room where we're intubating this child in case it comes to that. Cool. So once you've got your plans ready to go, I guess we'd move on to speed bomb, mm -hmm. which is the pre-intubation checklist that we use here. Um, I guess before I go into it, has anyone used speed bomb or different checklists before? I've used a number of different checklists over the years, depending on the, the department that we've worked at. And I think it's just a general consensus. I like the uh, the concept of using the pre-intubation checklist and why they were developed uh, in the first place, you know, to prevent you know, adverse um, outcomes and making sure that, you know, uh, you're well prepared and well planned out process. Um, and I've used them in both, you know, emergency situations, uh, you know, traumas where you don't have a lot of yeah, you time. You don't need to no. have heaps of time to do this checklist, no. but it's so important to do mm. every time. Yeah. Yeah. You can run through it in a number of seconds, really, um, and make sure everyone's on the same page and then take longer. So I uh, I don't particularly have a preference as long as it's done systematically and consistently by the entire department. Yeah, I think um, the I have used other checklists in the past, and I think Speedbomb is a very succinct way of, of checking all the kind of important stuff within the airway um, very quickly and it's if it's done well as a kind of call and response um, approach then it can be done really quickly and it can be a last gasp check before we're about to intubate this child mm -hmm. and it definitely reduces the, the chances of having adverse outcomes. Yeah it's definitely about timing of when you start the checklist hey because you can't start this checklist when the room is clearly still setting everything up because mm -hmm. you're not going to get the same outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, and like we said, the challenge and response is so important as well because it means that everyone's listening and on the same page. Um, so speed bomb, start with, you know, we have suction, we get a response hopefully of yes, we have one under the bed and we have two suctions going. Um, positioning of the patient, which you have already mentioned, Neil, so that's been optimised. So our airway equipment. Um, I said, guys, what have you got for your airway equipment? Run through that. Mm -hmm. um, end tidal CO2, really important so we can confirm our ETT position straight away. It's the gold standard. Um, drugs and IV access, making sure that we have two IV accesses. Hemodynamics optimised. Drugs and doses are checked and ready. You can tune into our drugs podcast to get more information on that. Yes. Um, <laughs> We have our backup airway plans B, C and D, which Neil has already talked us through, but this would be when he would tell the whole room. Um, and then pre-oxygenation, we have high flow. But I guess, you know, on this speed bomb, it says if they're spontaneously breathing, you would consider, you know, non-rebreather high flow. But not breathing, you would then go over to 
backbar mask. Hey. Um, would anyone use anything different for a child? I wouldn't because I'm comfortable with a bag valve mask, but you know, there there is the option of an anaesthetic bag if you're confident using it. Um, but being ED trained, not ICU trained or um, anaesthetics or theatre trained, I have not used them enough to feel confident to use them, but I know they are a useful tool and certainly useful to have in the department. Yeah, so it's important that we have it on standby for trained physician please don't try and use it if you haven't before because it does take a bit of getting used to um really good for giving CPAP if you're trained it's use yes because with a bag valve mask you absolutely cannot hold it over the face of a spontaneous spontaneously breathing child yeah um because they can't overcome the valve and you'll suffocate them but with an anesthetics bag you can provide just peak um, monitoring, cardiac monitoring attached, BP, cycling, SATs, CO2, um, and then the final briefing of the roles of the team. And then we can proceed to intubation. Okay, so we've, we've gone through the speed bomb now, so it's now time for you guys to go ahead and intubate this child. Well, I'm hoping that this intubation was successful. It sure was. Um, <laughs> um, so we'd be looking for um, putting the, the child back onto the bag valve mask. We would have some, hopefully, capnography coming up. So um, what would you do first? Would you attach the child straight to the bag valve mask or would you inflate the cuff first as the nurse airway yep. assistant? Well, the tube's gone in. I'm going to inflate the cuff first. And I'm going to do that because there is going to be a risk of aspiration if we start bagging the child first before we inflate the cuff. And then I'm going to attach the bag with a CO2 or HME filter attached so that we can get capnography as well once the bag is attached. Sense. Then I am going to, um, once we're happy with that, I'm going to secure the tube. And I'm going to do that by using... Lucoplast tape? Yep, that's the, that's the tape. <laughs> that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah. And we have Brown one, tape. There are about 5,000 ways of taping an ETT on a paediatric, but we do it one way, yeah, in our department, uh, which is as per Children's House Queensland and Retrieval Services, um, which we've got many videos on. Yeah, and we, um, we'll put a link into the bottom of the podcast as well yeah. for you to access straight to the, um, the Children's Health website. Yeah. See that video. Prior to uh, prior to intubation, you guys would have um, set up a ventilator should you have had time. Uh, so, what kind of ventilator settings would you have looked at for this particular case? Yeah, so I would be giving this child a tidal volume of six mils per kilo because it's got sick lungs, with a lower respiratory rate than um, you would expect. Um, with that, we'd have a low peak setting, so less than five, um, and starting on an FiO2 of one. The reason that we're having a lower respiratory rate and the peak is these kids will have um, generated auto-peak in the context of their bronchiolitis, and what we want to avoid is dynamic hyperinflation. What we might have in this kid is they might remain hypercapnic, um, and we might we might tolerate that hypercapnia um, for the time being. We want the IE, to IE ratio to be higher as well. 
and um, they may also have quite high peak pressures to begin with. But what we actually want to measure and care about is the plateau pressures. We want to make sure that they're less than 30. So for those of you that uh, are unsure on how to do that on the ventilator, we use a Hamilton T1, um, but every ventilator will have the capacity to do an inspiratory hold, which will hold flow from the ventilator and it will measure the pressures just within the lungs doing the alveolar pressure. Yeah, because the reading of the peak inspiratory pressure that you see on the ventilator is the upper airway and that's the resistance that Neil was um, just mentioned. Um, but the plateau pressure is going to give us that alveolar pressure and that's what we're really worried about you know, with barotrauma and making sure that they're adequately oxygenated. And I think if these are kids that were having difficulty ventilating, which is not uncommon in this scenario, no. then we're obviously going to get direct involvement from the uh, paediatric intensive care specialist as well, um, so that they can be involved at early stage. And I guess here we are in EDs, we're very comfortable with using volume controlled ventilation, which is something we, we use most of the time, um, particularly in mixed EDs. Um, but I guess you could um, consider the use of pressure control ventilation if you were confident and confident in using it. Um, once again, I don't. In well, my experience, I've never really, yeah. yeah, I've never really needed to because volume control, the SIMV is still a very safe mode of ventilation. Yeah, I mean, most studies now point towards that volume control ventilation actually reduces the duration of ventilation um, in paediatrics the risk of pneumothorax and the risk of chronic neonatal lung disease. So that's... I think it's going out of fashion. Yeah. yeah. Particularly in the ED. I mean, it's uh, like reducing the cognitive load. If, if we're not used to using something and we then try and do it in that kind of situation, we're more at risk of making errors than actually optimising the patient's conditions. So Absolutely. sticking to what we know uh, and what is safe, I think, is the best option. So certainly advocate for SIMV here. Yeah, and then hopefully, I guess, everything is quite smooth at this point and we're waiting for retrievals to arrive. And I guess what I would advocate for while you're waiting for retrievals to arrive is to go through uh, the Children's Health Queensland Retrieval Services checklist, um, which was created by them um, for what you and your facility can start to make sure that you haven't missed anything for that patient while you're waiting for them to arrive. So going through airway, breathing, circulation, documentation, you know, family considerations. So it's, it's a really good, good checklist, job. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And where can you get that, Kiri? You can get that through um, the Children's Health Queensland website. We actually have it on the back wall in our facility just so you can easily grab it and tick it. Um, but, yeah, we'll link it in this podcast as well. Cool. Yeah. And that's it. That's airway management of a 13-month-old bronchiolitis patient. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. It was really nice having you on board <laughs> chatting to us today. Thanks, guys. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much for listening, listening to, to our, our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Please follow your local facility guidelines and protocols. 